Leontine walked into the old college building and craned her neck and followed the trail of the staircase as it disappeared up into the distance. Her heart was beating. This was it. This was where she could almost hear the schoolgirls as they chattered while they trudged up to their classes. This is where she could see Manuela, desperate and alone, peering over the edge into the gloom of nothingness below. The actress in her had found her stage, the director, her set. Mädchen in uniform was now ready to be shot. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece. And this is episode nine, The Lola Lola Effect. Despite her misgivings and anxieties about working in film, Leontine Zagen found that she was adapting faster than she ever thought she would. What she'd taken to be the mysteries of film technique turned out to be less mysterious and more laborious. A great performance could not be a one-off, but had to be great for several takes and from several angles. We only have two main sources of information about the filming of Mädchen, Leontine's own very brief and skirting account in her memoirs, no more than a couple of pages, and an interview with the lead actress, Hertha Thiele, years later. Securing this interview is an extraordinary story in itself, and we'll visit that in later episodes. For now, we'll just gather facts from it. While Leontine's account of the filming is, in true Leontine style, polite, guarded, and asking more questions than it answers, Hertha's is an entirely different ballgame. Hertha is opinionated and partisan. Leontine, in her account, describes the filming process as the epitome of harmony from the first day to the last. Her lead actress, Hertha, she calls highly professional, displaying, she says, exemplary discipline and concentration. Hertha is less complimentary about Leontine. She complains that her director was not a natural filmmaker, was too intellectual. This is an interesting insult. In fact, it's this intellectual approach that lifted the film beyond what anyone had expected it to be, or at least imbued it with a much greater resonance than its producer Carl Froehlich expected. The early days of the production, the planning and script meetings went smoothly, with the author Krista Winslow, the director Leontin Zagen and the producer Carl Froehlich discussing ideas. If it worked filmically, it went into the script, simple as that. I've called Froehlich the producer. In fact, he was labelled the artistic director of the project, stepping in to help when he was needed, often overseeing the shooting, a kind of quality controller. We have no evidence to think that Leontine minded his involvement in the slightest. In fact, at the beginning, she was grateful for his guidance. There was nothing untoward in this team-based working. It's still the norm, and as far as I can tell, Froehlich was keen right from the beginning that this should be what he called a feminine film, and that it should be pictured in a female mind. After about two months of these discussions, the cast went into rehearsal mode. The rehearsals took place in Leontine's Berlin apartment and were thorough and professional. I imagine Leontine's husband and mother made themselves scarce at the time. A picture of Krista Winslow surrounded by the young women at a rehearsal suggests that she visited them at least once, if for nothing else than for a publicity shot. But while Leontine was in her element taking charge of rehearsals, she had her mind on all the other practical needs of a motion picture, 
and was driven by the feeling that the location had to be absolutely right. It must be, as she puts it, saturated with Prussianism. That meant driving out to Potsdam, to the southwest of Berlin. Many years before, the teenage Christa had arrived in Potsdam, her eyes wide at the grandeur of it, full of misgivings at being deposited at a boarding school. Now, Leontine was scouting the same area to recreate this sense of an imposing and forbidding institution. But it was the beginning of the 1930s, a modern world, and Potsdam's royal palaces must have seemed historic and quaint to the much-travelled Leontine. The staircase was her goal, and she found it at what she later called the old military college of Frederick the Great. It wasn't an easy place to secure. The school's authorities were reluctant to open it up to a film crew, and Froelich didn't want to ruffle any Potsdam feathers. But Leontine wouldn't give up on this. She knew the six-storey staircase would be perfect, and in the end the school relented. She'd heard that many years before, a young cadet had thrown himself from the staircase to his death and seemed almost thrilled at what she called the sinister aura of the place. Potsdam was by then no longer quite the exclusive, detached quarter that it had been in the previous century. Ufa, the dominant German film company, had its Babelsberg studio in the area. In fact, Babelsberg is believed to be the world's oldest film studio. Josef von Sternberg had shot the Blue Angel there only the year before, and Fritz Lang's Metropolis had been filmed the year before that. Leontine not only filmed inside the academy for her staircase shots, but also directed the crew to take pictures of the very martial statuary dotted around Potsdam. These opening shots must have been discussed in the pre-shooting meetings and are, if they were Leontine's idea, evidence of her so-called intellectual approach to the film. As the mise-en-scene was Leontine's responsibility, we can assume she thought long and hard about the opening moments. The music that accompanies these scene-setting shots, the theme for the whole film, was composed by Hansom Milde Meissner, a film composer who had worked with Froelich on at least three movies before Mädchen and would go on to compose for him for productions through the Weimar period, Nazi rule, wartime and into the early 1950s. I've grown very fond of that musical opening, with its bass of a military march, but also its hint of playfulness and the way it slides so easily from one sensation to another. As the opening titles end, so a school bell sounds, and we go into a new lilting phase of the theme, as the statues and pillars pass us on screen, and then it changes once again as the image cuts to marching schoolgirls. It's one of only two exterior shots in the film. As I understand it, Leontine also scouted for a girls' school to use as a set, and found a distinguished one also in Potsdam. I'm assuming that's where these exterior marching shots took place. We're stunned these days to see the girls all in long, striped, shapeless dresses, used as we are to the image of the striped pyjamas of the Nazis' concentration camps. However, the Machtergreifung, or Hitler's seizure of power, was still two years away, and I can't find any significance in the use of stripes before that period. It's one of those things that hits us in hindsight. Once the girls enter the school, the scene setting is over and done with. The film switches a gear, the tone changes, the lighting, the pace. We are inside. The school envelops Manuela, 
As soon as she arrives, she's subsumed by it. She steals to the foot of the stairs and looks up them, wondering what's beyond, starts to mount them. There is, of course, so much that will happen up those stairs. Another schoolgirl, Marga, appears in the corridor and tells her she's not allowed to go up them without permission. At the same time, Manuela's aunt comes out of the office to kiss her niece goodbye. As the aunt retreats to the sunlit main door with Fräulein von Kesten, the deputy head, so Manuela and Marga turn and walk into the heart of the building. These two groups separate in a single non-stop fluid shot, the outside world retreating as the girls go further into the heart of the place, as though travelling down a tunnel to a new world. In this way, set, story and character are as one idea. It's highly moving and was innovative and unusual. The genius of the shot is how much it conveys simply by moving the camera with the girls from the light to the dark, the exterior to the interior. It's the idea of institutionalisation personified. Two cinematographers worked on Mädchen, Franz Weimer and Reimar Kunze, both of whom were long-time associates of Karl Fröhlich, extremely experienced and dependable cameramen. Leontine must have felt in very safe hands. Hertha certainly did. The young actress found her director too bossy and preferred to answer to Fröhlich and his cameraman. She recalled later that when she and Dorothea Wieck were doing close-ups from each angle, Franz Weimer would ask her if she wanted Dorothea to stand opposite her. No, she'd say, I'll just do it straight to Louise. Louise being the name Weimer gave his camera. In fact, she felt she had a personal connection with Weimer and preferred working with him over any other crew member, particularly when it came to the way he lit her face. The faces are indeed lit in an extraordinary way. They are ethereal. A face can take up much of a screen, remain there like a portrait, so that we can linger over it. We have time to read them, pick up the emotion in them. We can see the glistening, banked-up tears in Manuela's wide, trusting eyes. It's possible that Leontine and Weimer liked this approach because it was so unashamedly, well, female. Tears, longing, intensity of feeling... How beautiful to watch them flitting across the canvas of the face and how effective it is. Both Hertha and Dorothea, the leads, were heterosexual and although Hertha accepted that Dorothea was very beautiful, she didn't feel any warmth towards her and found it difficult at times to connect with her. How much better to film her separately, to place the camera directly in front of her and let us see for ourselves how Manuela is struggling to suppress her forbidden feelings. The use of close-ups in Mädchen was considered groundbreaking for the time. From the point of view of the story, they are perfectly realised. In a place where emotional connection and warmth between two women is not allowed, self-expression has to be communicated in other ways, facially. We jump from face to face, gathering as we go the agony of having to hide feelings. The camera takes its time picking up the ticks and signals of the conflict within. At this uncompromising angle, there's nowhere to hide. And so, we get to the kiss. Sometimes I wonder, have I made too much of this kiss? I wasn't sitting in that audience in Berlin in 1931, so how can I judge it properly? 
I'd be a German living in Weimar, Berlin, for God's sake, in, in an era largely free of censorship, a time when the androgynous female form was celebrated. When it came to shooting that scene, did Christa, Leontine, Karl Fröhlich, Walter Zuppa all discuss how they thought it would go down? What were Leontine's notes at the script meeting? What would Christa's take been? Christa loved kissing, kissing other women in particular, as she herself pointed out often enough. All we know from these meetings is Leontine's aggravatingly brief account in her memoirs. Don't be modest, let yourself go, Fröhlich told her, and we don't even know for sure what he was referring to. She is maddeningly discreet about all things sexual. But we have one other reference to the shooting of this scene, and that's from Hertha Thieler. She recalls how amused Karl Fröhlich was by it. Either he was present during the shooting of the scene, or he was speaking about it afterwards while viewing the day's rushes. But Hertha remembers him saying to his right-hand man, Walter Zuppa, Imagine you, Walter, a non-commissioned officer, kneeling by your bed at night, falling into my arms. In other words, he was saying, Hey, Walter, can you imagine if this scene played out between men? And the short answer to this otherwise rhetorical question is no. Because for all the images of Emsay and the Kit Kat Club that we might have of the Weimar era, for the Christopher Isherwoods and W.H. Ordens, the truth is that wider German society was as convention-loving and straight-laced as mainstream Britain and much of the rest of Europe and America. Male same-sex relationships were still against the law in Weimar Germany. Leftist elements of the Republic had tried, but had failed to get paragraph 175, which outlawed male homosexuality, abolished. And what's more, a new era was dawning, a much less tolerant one. Although Germany gave the world its first gay movie, Anders als die Anden, or Different from the Others, as far back as 1919, screenings were often subject to violent protests, and the predominantly Catholic southern states of Germany banned it altogether. Anders als die Anden, interestingly, is about a teacher's love for his male student, and ends in the protagonist's suicide. No, Karl Fröhlich couldn't have imagined the girl's dormitory kiss scene played out among male characters, but he clearly didn't have any qualms about lesbian inferences in this all-woman movie. It's impossible to think that he didn't notice that element of the story. For starters, he couldn't have misinterpreted the pivotal line uttered by Fräulein von Bernburg. What you call sin, I call the great spirit of love in all its forms. But I would argue that he saw in it something profitable, as long as he didn't let it become too overt, and if it involved good-looking actresses. We have to remember that Froelich was a master of giving audiences what they wanted. That's how he worked. He was a commercial filmmaker who knew the formula for success. Taking on a film story wasn't simply a case of finding any old plot line and adapting it quickly before anyone else did. It had to make business sense. There was no way that someone like Karl Froelich didn't have some idea of how this thing would pan out when he got his secretary to make that call to Leontine Zagen and ask her to come and see him. So why did he jump at this story? What did he see in it? I think I know. It's two words. Marlene Dietrich. Yes, Lola Lola, the nightclub singer from the Blue Angel. 
Dietrich was already a cult figure on the basis of two movies the year before, The Blue Angel and Morocco, both directed by Joseph von Sternberg. And the fact that she wore a suit and kissed another girl in Morocco, far from turning audiences against her, sealed her fortunes as a movie star. She was dangerous, sexy, gorgeous and yet palatable to the cinema-going public. Hertha later recalled that Froelich was very careful to rule out Margarete Meltzer, described as a masculine-looking actress for the part of Fräulein von Bernburg, and was quick to approve the ethereally lovely Dorothea Wieck. Froelich was no stranger to the phenomenon of female stardom. His career was bound up with that of Germany's most beloved and successful silent star, Henny Porton. I love Henny Porton. I can see why a whole nation did. In fact, Porton was there right at the beginning of the concept of a screen star. When movies were in their infancy, actors weren't even credited in the productions. It wasn't until Froelich's boss, Oscar Mester, was repeatedly asked for the name of his main actress that he had the bright idea of sending photographs of her to the film distributors so that they could pin them up beside the movie announcements. Henny Porton became a household name. Many years later, Froelich gave the Swedish actress Ingrid Bergman her German break with the film The Four Companions. He was to find further commercial success with another Swedish actress, Zara Leander, with whom he made some of his biggest cinema releases in the late 30s and early 40s. A charismatic, alluring, strong female lead made sound commercial sense. I don't see any evidence that Froelich felt that he had any kind of feminist mission in his filmmaking. What he did have was business drive, and sexually adventurous women were at that point in Germany good business. Less so under the Nazis, but we'll come to that later. Now, here's my next contention. I think that he felt that by bringing women on board to write and direct this film, he would increase his chances of it getting a bigger audience through sheer novelty. What he maybe didn't know was that between them, Krista and Leontine had a wealth of life experience and a personal backstory, which meant that they would imbue the project with something more authentic and resonant than he would ever have imagined. In short, I think there were two films being made here. I think Froelich was manoeuvring things towards a titillating all-girl spectacle, but in the meantime, Leontine was creating something far more honest and important maybe even unconsciously, because that's all she knew. And I think it's Leontine's version that has survived and still speaks to us after all these years, while Froelich's giggling schoolgirls have fallen away. Perhaps evidence for this assertion is the strange way in which the lead actress Hertha Thiele sides with Froelich in her memories of his directing skills. Why side with anyone? Was there a sense that there were sides to be had? Clearly there was. She doesn't like the way the so-called intellectual Leontine worked, her rigorous rehearsal and her quest to find an authentic voice for the film. How strange to think that an actress felt she could choose between who to answer to in the making of a movie. As for The Kiss, I don't know if it featured in the stage versions. It's not in the English translation of the play by Barbara Burnham that came out shortly after the release of the film. There's simply an embrace from which Fräulein von Bernberg extricates herself awkwardly. I have no idea if Leontine had included it in the stage version in Berlin. We will never know who thought it would be a good idea. 
And so we can only conclude that at that script meeting it was suggested and discussed and agreed on. If it was good enough for Dietrich in Morocco the year before, then it would be just as good for them this year. Yes, the kiss is a big deal. I'm not exaggerating. If it wasn't, it wouldn't have been worked up to with such tension and the scene wouldn't have been so elaborately set. Again, the lighting is breathtaking, the girls' moonlit shadows thrown against the dormitory walls as they kneel at the foot of their beds, their teacher making her way down the rows. We cut back several times to a smiling Manuela waiting on her bed, and then a montage of girls' faces, again the close-ups of features brimming with emotion. Ilza's bed is next to Manuela's, and as the two girls are in shot, she looks off-camera and declares, It's my turn next. We know the teacher is tantalisingly close. And then she arrives from the shadows, her dark, slim figure contrasting with the girls' billowing white nightdresses. She gives Ilza the standard quick peck on the forehead and turns to Manuela and stops. The pace changes. She looks down at the girl. They look intently at each other and they kiss. That's the kind of build-up you get in a love story. It doesn't really matter whether Karl Froehlich thought the kiss would be box office gold or not. It doesn't matter whether he approved it, was amused by it, had doubts about it. What matters is that it would never have happened had Christa Winslow not longed for it as a girl all those years ago and Leontine Zaga not brought it to life. For all we talk about lighting and mise-en-scene, the inspiration has to come from somewhere and the truth of it can only emerge in sympathetic hands. That kiss... That momentary abandon and rejection of forbidden love meant an awful lot to many, many women when the film came to be shown. Women who thought they'd never see their experiences in public like this. That wasn't Froehlich's doing. That was Christa's and Leontine's. Karl Froehlich insisted on two changes from the script, presumably with Leontine's full approval. One considerable and understandable, and the other small but I think significant. First, the big one. He didn't want Manuela to commit suicide. It was too melodramatic, he decided. He felt instinctively that it was the wrong ending for the film. I think given the tone of the rest of the film, he was right. They did try it, though, apparently, with Hertha attached to ropes and pulleys, leaping spread-eagled from the edge of the staircase. It just didn't look right and was abandoned as an idea. It's impressive, though, that Froehlich, whose every filmmaking instinct was based on years of giving audiences what they wanted, felt he knew exactly how viewers would respond to a certain ending and how it might detract from the film as a whole. The second omission from the original play script, much subtler but still quite telling, was the excising of a passage where Manuela tells von Bernborg how desperately she misses her mother and how smelling the contents of the linen cupboard brings her back to life. Froehlich was forever warning against including anything too mawkish or sentimental. But I wonder if he also wanted to avoid any suggestion that von Bernborg might be a substitute mother for the schoolgirl. In other words, that it might somehow weaken the latent eroticism. I'd like to finally just point to one other striking scene from the film that I suspect is Leontine's doing, though of course I can't prove it. It's when the girls are left to their own devices after the school play and have a party of their own, while the teachers take tea elsewhere. From a technical point of view, it veers at times into naturalism and feels almost fly on the wall, 
The gulls run around delightedly, with the camera movement giving the sense that it's being buffeted about. They end, massed around the piano, their bodies swaying poignantly to the music. It feels so real, so captured, was probably improvised. If anything epitomises the female feel of the film, then to me this moving moment does. They are free and they just want to dance. Leontine later said that she had only encountered enthusiastic faith in her direction from the Fröhlich Studios. She also said that she'd successfully improvised scenes on Mädchen from the spirit of the moment. I truly believe that this beautiful, naturalistic dancing schoolgirl scene is exactly what she was talking about. In three weeks, the shooting was over. Lightning fast. So fast that no one really knew what to make of it, least of all Leontine, the director. It was three weeks' work done with her usual dedication and attention to expressive detail. From here on in, her work was in the hands of the editor. As I understand it, the editor for Mädchen was Oswald Hafenrichter, then right at the start of his career. If this is the case, then no wonder it was such a standout piece of work. Hafenrichter went on to an auspicious career, receiving an Oscar nomination for editing The Third Man in 1949. The cast of Mädchen said their goodbyes and went their separate ways. They had other commitments, careers to work on. Some may be no commitments at all, but a new drive to find work. They next came together on the night of the 27th of November at the Capital Cinema in Berlin. It was the premiere of their film, and no one quite knew how it would go down with the sophisticated and cosmopolitan audience. Next time on The Kiss, we'll find out. The Kiss was written and presented by Bibi Berkey. It was directed by Mark Lingwood. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam Webber and original music was composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions. <laughs>